Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. I'm your host, Cambo, and this is True Crime Island Special Edition. Tonight, I have a heart-wrenching story of survival from one of the islanders and the double jeopardy laws get a reworking in the UK, which means one of their best-known gangsters could end up back in court after confessing in his book for a murder he was found not guilty of. So, first up, let's me, let me read out the story of survival that we got from one of our fellow islanders. I was a homeless teen from 1973 to 1977, aged 13 to 17, with a brief nine-month stay in a group home. Homelessness is a vulnerable situation, and as smart as I thought I was about surviving that condition, all it takes is one mistake to put yourself in a bad situation. I was 15 and walking home from the grocery store when someone stopped and asked if I wanted a ride. It was someone I didn't know, but had seen around. He was probably in his late 20s or early 30s. I decided it was okay to take a ride for the few blocks to where I was staying. He said he had to stop by his house and then he would take me home. It was then that I started to get nervous. I wanted to stay in the car, but he pulled me out and into his house, which was a trailer in an open area next to a park. This was just outside of the Emporia, Kansas. As soon as I got inside, I knew I was in trouble but I thought that maybe if I just went along and gave him what he wanted, he would let me go. But I was wrong. He didn't just want to rape me, he wanted to hurt, humiliate and brutalise me, which he did for hours. My mind always thinks 24 hours, but I think that is because it started in the early evening of the first day and I didn't get away until the night of the next day. He made it clear that he had no intention of letting me go and though he never said outright that he was going to kill me, I knew that I was in danger of dying. The next evening, he left me locked in the room where I'd been raped. I don't know why he left the room because he never said. There was a small window in the room mainly for ventilation. As I was sitting there, I heard a voice tell me to get out now and I felt the urgency of that message. So I opened the window and squeezed through. I'm a small person at five feet tall and at 15 I was very skinny. I dropped a few feet to the ground and started running. I was in my underwear and I was barefoot. I heard him chasing after me and yelling and I kept running and hiding for a bit, and then running again. I know I did this for long after he'd stopped chasing me, but I couldn't stop believing he was right behind me, and in situations like that, I think your mind plays tricks on you. I found my way to the house where I was staying with friends, and ran to the shower and stayed in there long after the water had run cold. They kept asking me what happened, but I couldn't talk. And when I finally got out of the shower, I just wrapped up in a blanket on the floor and cried. Finally, I told my friends I'd been raped and they convinced me to go to the police. But maybe because it was the 70s 
or maybe because I was a homeless teen. They didn't take it too seriously. I could describe my attacker and they wrote it down, but they never had me come back or contacted me again. It's strange, but life takes with one hand only to give back again with the other. I was an abused child and that gives you a certain set of survival skills. I don't recommend the experience of being abused, but I do think the hypervigilance I learned allowed me to survive when others may not have. I was able, to an extent, to divorce myself from the brutal attack at the time, and when I heard the voice, maybe just my will to survive, telling me to get out, I didn't hesitate to go. All this has changed me, and it took years and years to stop letting it destroy me, and years of therapy to realise that even if I had made a bad decision to get in the car, the attack was not my fault, but the fault of the rapist. I'm not just a survivor, but now I'm a fucking warrior. I can't prove it, but I do know that when I saw in the paper that a man had been arrested for the rape and murder of another young teen, I got physically ill upon seeing his picture, and I do believe that man was my attacker. But since I can't prove it, I won't mention his name. I always wonder if this was indeed him, why I survived where she did not. Maybe I just got lucky. I was told because of the damage I'd sustained that I would never have a child. But I was married in 1977 when I was 17 to the man I'm still married to today. And in 1980, I gave birth to a healthy daughter. I also miraculously didn't contract any diseases. I did more than survive. I beat the odds on many levels. I do suffer from PTSD and that is hard sometimes. But I have friends and family who understand the bad days. My rapist has nothing and is nothing. He's just a worthless waste of a human being who has never contributed anything good to this world. I have friends and family. I walk in the sunshine and if there are storms I can listen to them safe in my home. I'm a kind person and I think in my small part of the world I make a difference to the people I meet. Now I was told by a fellow islander that I could mention her name but the internet being what it is I've chosen not to. Look to start with, the cops were pricks for fuck's sake. But as our friend said, being homeless and young, they just didn't give a shit. That was years ago, and you would hope that nowadays things have changed. But I suppose there's always going to be a broad spectrum in the quality of law enforcement, not only from state to state, but from country to country. It's great to see our friend not only survive, but to come through as a warrior. And I know she wants her words to hopefully help others out there that may be going through a similar situation. Just think that if the friggin' cops had just done their job and reached out to follow up the report, then maybe that other girl that was raped and murdered would still be with us today. 
It can be so hard for the victims of crimes to firstly report the crime, but then to have to be the one to following, follow it up, for fuck's sake. Okay. So, next I want to read from a BBC News item Jane Bradley posted on the Island Notice Board in regards to reform of the UK double jeopardy laws. Now, these double jeopardy laws, they say, are going to be ushered out. Well, not 100%, but they're going to relax them a little bit. So let's have a look. This is from the BBC. A legal principle which prevents people being tried for the same crime twice has been scrapped in England and Wales. The ban on double jeopardy, which has existed for around 800 years, took effect from Monday. The Court of Appeal can now quash an acquittal and order a retrial when new and compelling evidence is produced. Police plan to re-examine the case of 22-year-old Julie Hogg, who was murdered in a sex attack at her home in Billingham, Teesside, in November 1989. Boyfriend Billy Dunlop was tried for the murder of the pizza delivery girl, but acquitted after the jury failed to reach a verdict on two separate occasions. The change will apply retrospectively, so someone could face a second trial if evidence such as DNA material, new witnesses or a confession came to light. So the bit I'm going to talk about a bit later is quite interesting with regard to this being brought in retrospectively. Let's go on. A Home Office spokesman said, It is important the public should have full confidence in the ability of the criminal justice system to deliver justice. This can be undermined if it is not possible to convict offenders for very serious crimes where there's a strong and viable evidence of their guilt. Director of Public Prosecutions Ken MacDonald expects expects no more than a handful of cases to be brought a year. A Crown Prosecution Service spokeswoman said, There has to be new evidence which was not available at the time of the original trial. Just because someone is reported to have confessed in a book or a newspaper interview does not necessarily mean that is evidence in a form we could use. But also it could mean they could use it. So I'll just go on. The National Crime Faculty believes there are 35 murder cases in which acquitted defendants could be reinvestigated and new charges brought. The reforms, which also allow hearsay evidence to be admissible in court, come under the new Criminal Justice Act. They apply to 30 serious crimes, including murder, rape, Class A drug offences and war crimes. But double jeopardy remains in force for lesser offences. The Bar Council's former chairman, Mattias Kelly QC, said the new law changes would lead to prosecutions routinely seeking a second bite of the cherry if a case flopped the first time for good reason. And civil liberties groups also condemned the move, fearing the law could be used to persecute people and lead to miscarriages of justice. However, it will only be possible to retry an acquitted person once. 
the Stephen Lawrence racist murder case, is another episode where detectives hope new evidence could come to light. Other cases could include Ronnie Knight, the ex-husband of EastEnders actress Barbara Windsor, and ex-Cray Twins associate Freddie Foreman. Now, Ronnie Knight is the one I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to read an extract from his book. So, both have written books where they allegedly confessed to involvements in murders. Ronnie Knight was married to Babs, Queen Vic landlady Peggy Mitchell, in the BBC soap when he ordered the gangland execution of the man who had killed his brother. Knight stood trial at the Old Bailey for the murder of Alfredo Zomparelli and was cleared after pleading not guilty. But he admits in his autobiography, Ronnie Knight, Memoirs and Confessions, which, is, uh, which was serialised in the newspapers, how he, he paid hitman Nicky Girard £1,000 to murder Zomparelli. The Italian bouncer had stabbed Ronnie's brother David to death during a brawl at the Latin Quarter nightclub in London, Soho. Zomparelli was jailed for four years, but Ronnie did not think it was enough. Ronnie, now 64 and nearing the end of a seven-year sentence for receiving £350,000 from a £6 million Security Express robbery, says, I promised myself he wouldn't pay with a beating. He would pay with his life. On his orders, the contract killer walked into an amusement arcade and shot Zomparelli in the head after his release from jail. Hitman Girard was later shot dead in another gangland feud. I'll just read this extract from Ronnie's biography and you be the judge on whether they should charge him again with murder. So, here we go. After David's death, I swore that I was going to kill Alfredo Zomparelli. It was no idle threat in the heat and despair at the moment. I had no other option. For with, with him alive, the hate inside me would eventually kill me as well. David was my youngest brother. We were a close family and loved and respected the others, but David was the favourite. He and I were very close because our personalities were alike. He met a lovely girl, also called Barbara, got married, bought a nice house, then had a beautiful baby. I still get choked to think about him. 28 years since I cradled him in my arms as he lay bleeding to death that day in May 1970. David had gone to a pub for a quiet drink with pals when some geezer started giving him grief because he was a member of the Knight family. This geezer said one of our other brothers, John, had taken a right liberty with him. Then it all blew up. Four other blokes came out of the shadows and set about David with anything they could lay their hands on. Ashtrays, bottles, if it wasn't screwed down, they picked it up and smashed the kid with it. How they stopped short of killing him, I'll never know, because he was in a terrible mess. I took the attack so personally, it was eating my insides out and I couldn't sleep. No one could do that to Ronnie Knight's kid brother. I decided to put myself about and find out who the people involved were. I caught up with them in one of the clubs and I was so wild I was ready to take them all on, but I decided to wait until David had recovered. After David came out of hospital, 
me, him and my brother Johnny went to sort out the ringleader. We went to a nightclub called the Latin Quarter where we expected to find him. As soon as we walked through the door, there was mayhem. Bottles were smashed and in seconds it was like a war zone. Feet, fists and bodies were flying everywhere. It was all so chaotic I lost David. When I caught sight of him again, he was almost at the top of the stairs and blocking his way was this Italian character Zomparelli waving a carving knife around. As I started towards them with the intention of kicking the Italian down the stairs, David tried to weave past him. But Zomparelli plunged the knife twice into his chest. Getting to David was like wading through treacle in nightmarish slow motion. Zomparelli ran past me in a panic. I should have done him in there and then, but all I wanted to do was get to my David and stop the fountain of blood spouting from his chest. I knelt by his side and cradled him in my arms. I knew he was dying, but I couldn't stop myself repeating over and over again, Are you alright, David? Are you alright? I was also praying to a God I'd never troubled before. I pleaded, Please don't take him. Please let him live and stared into his open eyes for some flicker of recognition. By the time the ambulance came, I couldn't see for tears. All the way to the hospital, I offered everything to God, anything so long as my David lived. When he died, I ran wild outside in the pouring rain, hating myself for what I'd done. I felt I'd killed him as sure as if I'd held the knife. It was all down to my stupid pride. David had got over his beating, but I wanted revenge. I vowed I would punish Zomparelli. After the funeral, I spent three fruitless weeks searching for him. I was reaching the conclusion he must have thrown himself into the Thames rather than face what was coming to him when he suddenly turned up in the arms of the law. Knowing he was in the frame, he went to the cops and gave them some cock and bull about what happened that night. Five months later, he stood in the dock at the Old Bailey and spewed some story about defending himself against David with a knife. He sobbed as he said David had practically fallen on the knife. All he got was four years for manslaughter. Four lousy years. Forty-eight poxy months. That was all my kid brother was worth. I was gutted. I believed in an eye for an eye and was obsessed with killing the scum. If spending the rest of my life behind bars could have brought my brother back, I would have strangled the Italian bastard with my bare hands in front of the law. But I decided to hold off. I realised that if I had run it past my old mates Reggie and Ronnie Cray, they would have told me to do the deed later when he came out. I considered putting the word out in the prison grapevine that any con who fancied tipping scalding water on the rat or better still, cutting his throat in the showers would be well looked after. But I decided to catch up with him when he walked out of prison. As soon as he was free, he began running a bucket shop travel agency and spent all his spare time in the Golden Goose Amusement Arcade in Soho, round the corner from my club, the A&R. Was he trying to rub my nose in it? Any time of the day I could have walked around there and stuck a knife in his back. But there's more than one way to skin a cat. I organised a clean gun, which was like borrowing a fountain pen given the company I kept. 
I establish what time of day to go into the arcade, do the business and be out in under a minute. Barbara was working in London. She had no idea what I intended to do and I could have done with her being out of town but there was no way I was waiting any longer. I was all ready to wax Zomparelli when I bumped into my old mate Alfie Gerard. I confided in him that I was about to turn executioner. Not the sort of thing to tell any Tom, Dick or Harry, but Alfie was one of your own. He was trustworthy and no stranger to murder himself. He told me to wait a couple of days. Then his son Nicky came into my club and asked if he could have a word. The first thing he said was, Don't get the hump, but my old man's told me what you're going to do to the bastard who did your brother, and I want to help. I told him, I trust you both, but really, I don't need any help. Then he said, I don't mean help you. I mean, I want to do it for you. I agreed that the risks for him were about a hundred times less than they were for me, given that I'd advertised loudly that I wanted to kill Zomparelli. I offered to work with him, but he said it would be better if I kept well out the way and he had a fella ready to go with him. I said I'd give them both a grand. We shook hands and that was it. A week later in September 1974, Zomparelli was shot dead. One bullet in the head and three in the back while he was playing a pinball game called Wild Thing in the Golden Goose. I got a call from Nicky. He said, Ronnie, it's done. Are you covered? I said, don't worry. I've got so many witnesses there ain't a court big enough to hold them. I opened a bottle of champagne, poured myself a glass and held it skyward saying, rest easy David, that bastard's paid the price. It was four years and five months since he had died. It seemed like a lifetime, but I felt like a terrible weight had been lifted from my chest. When I picked Barbara up from the theatre where she was appearing with Sid James, she was shaking like a leaf. She'd heard about the killing on the news in a dressing room and thought of me straight away. The first thing she says as she got into the car was, Where were you? I assured her I'd been in the club as usual and it had been a full house. It certainly wouldn't do her any good to know about any arrangements I might have made. Satisfied I wasn't involved, she started to worry about the publicity we'd get because the papers were bound to drag up everything from the past. I said, oh that's charming, I could get pulled in over this and all you're worried about is getting some bad press. She cried and said she hadn't meant it to sound like that, but on the other hand, maybe she did. A couple of days later, Nicky called into the club. He just said, it was a piece of cake. Pity he didn't know what was coming. Simple as that. All squared off nicely. I gave him a nice thick envelope, shook his hand and told him, I won't forget what you've done for me and my family. The newspapers had a field day over the murder. So too did the police and it was no surprise when I was pulled in. Three hours they held me, banging away with their interrogation. But I knew they had nothing on me, and I was so confident I said I would have liked nothing better than to have been one of the shooters, but I hadn't been invited to the party. It was a bit cocky, but it threw them off balance and they let me go. At Zomparelli's inquest, the verdict was that he had been unlawfully killed by persons unknown. Bingo, I thought I'd got away with it, until that is... Wednesday, January 16, 
1980. The police, some armed, gave me an early morning wake-up call and arrested me on suspicion of murdering Zomparelli. Barbara was stunned, but she didn't kick up a fuss as she'd done in the past when the old Bill nicked me. She stood sobbing as I was led away. Nicky Gerard was inside for armed robbery, but I knew there was no way he would have turned grass. His dad Alfie would have killed him. It turned out it was the other bloke who Nicky took with him on the hit. He'd turned super grass and put the finger on about a hundred fellas. So I ended up in the dock accused of murder. When the jury went out, I sat in a puddle of sweat. My nerves stretched to breaking point. Then came those two wonderful words, not guilty. For a second I was not sure if I heard the not. I turned to the jury and said, Thank you gentlemen, Merry Christmas, you've certainly made mine. I looked over to Barbara and tears were streaming down her face. She cried out, My God, oh my God, my Ronnie. I turned to the jury again and said, Thank you all, justice has been done. Well, it had. Zomparelli deserved to die, and Nicky Gerard had earned my eternal gratitude for seeing it was done. I walked out of the court, my head held high, knowing that I'd got away with murder. So that was uh, Ronnie Knight, Memoirs and Confessions by Ronnie Knight with Peter Gerard. It's published by Blake Publishing. So what do you reckon? They should retry him or not? That's pretty damning, his confession. So now, whether or not this confession in his biography is strong and compelling new evidence is yet to be seen. But with these new laws, it may help bring justice to those out there that have had juries fail them in the past. It reminds me of the Matthew Levison trial where Michael Atkins was acquitted when damning evidence was not allowed at his trial and maybe if the state was able to give it another go down the track that he wouldn't have been given the immunity from prosecution that he now enjoys. Of course, they still only get one more go at a suspect but that will ensure a fairer judicial system overall. Sometimes it may take years for a witness to a crime to be comfortable to come forward with evidence well past the original trial date. Well, we'll have to wait to see how it turns out. So, True Crime Islanders, that was a bit of a different special edition as I am out of town and things have been hectic here last week. I'd like to thank our brave fellow Islander for sharing her story and I hope it can bring strength to others. I'd like to thank Jane for the link to the BBC Double Jeopardy story and I ask anyone who's something of interest to do the same. The special editions are where you can be part of the podcast. A shout out to Senga who had a terrible time with a lost handbag today and I'm glad you got that all sorted out. Hi to Jason and Shags, who've been hounding me for beer coolers, or koozies as some people call them, and I should get my hands on them tomorrow or the next day. Stickers are in and will be posted out to Patreon members on my return, and sticker swaps are on, so if you have one to swap, contact me. Patreon shoutouts for Shags and Matthew, plus Dahlia up to pledge tonight. Remember, for as little as a dollar a month, that's four episodes, you, get, you too can help out the island 
Uh, also, just sharing the word is a great way for us to develop the island. So help a friend and introduce them to the wonderful world of podcasts. Now, before I go, I'm going to read out one special iTunes review from Missy or Chantel. And it's a, a fantastic. Thank you very much. Here it goes. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair by Missy. Five rate. I'm relatively new to the world of pods and my passion is true crime, more specifically Australian crimes and casters. Cambo is absolutely awesome. Clarity crystal clear. His research is outstanding and always makes sure he's got all the facts lined up. If he has any shadow of a doubt with facts in the cases he covers, he always makes that crystal clear and he's always open for suggestions. And he's fantastic with all his supporters. I don't know how he does it, but he finds time to always get back to each and everyone who follows and supports the island. If you are after a fair dinkum Aussie pod who calls a spade a spade and the ability to truly express the raw emotions, drive and passion through voice, in particular the more disturbing cases, it's truly a flood out there of true crime pods. So I hope that this review helps others out there who love true crime and love a really good Australian pod. Also, he's got some choice opening and closing catchy and unique phrases. To you, Cambo, and to True Crime Island, Missy. Thanks, Missy. And there's look, there's plenty of reviews on there. I can't read them all out, but I, I appreciate every one of them. There's a lot on other countries that I can't quite read. Uh, so just keep uh, rating and review. That's fantastic. I love it. Okay, so next, don't forget uh, www.truecrimeisland.com. We've got email, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. That's also if you'd like to do a PayPal donation rather than a Patreon one. There's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So there's plenty of ways to get involved with the island and check out a few extra things. Last thing, there's a podcast called Nothing Rhymes With Murder. I've been asked to do a, a short case for them, which I did on Friday, uh, Thursday night before I left, and they're recording Sunday night, so should be recording about the same time as me. So have a look at, for the latest episode there. We'll go get, just have a look at their podcast. It's quite good, and see what happens. The, I did put that episode up for Patreon members, so they can have a preview of it uh, from the Patreon site. So. I'm your host, Cambo. This has been True Crime Island Special Edition. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.